The Academic Podcast Agency. Hello, my name's Martin, and we are here today because my grandfather was um, working for the Ministry of State Security, which gives me some kind of unique insight of how these people were operating, as far as he told me, obviously. In the, in the light of the fact that we're sat in a darkly lit room, what is the difference between an interview and an interrogation. Is this an interrogation or is this an interview? Well, obviously it's an interview, yeah. Um, of course, within an interrogation, um, you try to conceal something. And as an interrogator, you try to find out something. Many people, when they hear the word Stasi, instantly have all sorts of associations which are not positive, you know, in any way at all. How would you want the world to understand who your grandfather is? My grandfather was an employee of the state. He did what he believed to be right um, within the given laws and constantly surveilled by judges and lawyers of the state. The only time he actually hit someone was because that person was uh, smashing his ashtray and he served two days in prison for that. So he is, to use an American term he's a patriot he did what he believed to be right for his country yeah and i think they don't like him because he did it so well and he's a smart guy a very clever man this episode of the glass beaker has brought me to berlin i've come here to visit martin whose grandfather herbert was once an employee for the ministry of state security in the gdr the GDR was a communist government under Soviet command between 1949 and 1989. And in this strange tale of politics and geography, Berlin was once a divided city. Whilst the east side of Berlin's infamous wall was home to those that lived and worked under the rule of the GDR, the west side of the wall was where the non-communist BRD, or Federal Republic of Germany, resided. The antagonism between these two neighbours became iconic global shorthand for the ideological conflict between communism and capitalism. And from this period of history, the state security of the GDR, also known as the MFS or Stasi, is widely regarded to have been one of the most effective and repressive intelligence secret police agencies to have ever of existed. So by exploring what has become history's most famous example of state surveillance, this episode wants to understand better the real meaning of privacy. What does it matter if your government holds information about you without your knowledge? What personal harm or gains can come from the sharing of all your individual thoughts and actions with the society within which you live? And how does the surveillance technology that now saturates us culturally change the way we comprehend ourselves as individuals and the political or social choices that we make? time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character. This is... The Glass Bead Game. The Glass Bead Game. My dear friends... Inform, investigate, and engage.
Tonight in Berlin, it is Freedom Night. But this is the east side of the Brandenburg Gate where thousands of East Berliners have been crossing into freedom all day long. The Berlin Wall, that ominous barrier between communism and democracy, was torn down symbolically yesterday when East Germany opened its borders. So I believe you were five when the wall came down. That's about right. So perhaps you could tell me, if anything, what it would have meant to you, but also really, as importantly, because you were only five, what did it mean to your family, to your parents and your grandfather? These kinds of events don't have a big impact on a five-year-old. Yeah, I never asked myself around that time, oh, what happened that day? I do remember a scene where a friend of my mom was ringing our doorbell and she was very, very excited. And I think she asked my mom to come with her, which she didn't. So my parents, at least, were not part of this kind of hype. They didn't witness it personally. I do know the pictures, obviously. They are well promoted and publicized whenever it fits. It looks like a revelation. Some people getting their freedom back. They are really happy. Everybody's really happy. The population of the GDR was like 17 million people. Definitely not everybody was there on that evening to break that wall down. And quiet homage too to the memory of East Germans who died trying to escape from the East to freedom in the West. In the context of your work, what, what does freedom mean? Freedom in a political sense, I would say, is to do with the disadvantaged having institutional support for them being able to correct their position or getting opportunities to contest their being disadvantaged within the society. Uh, I'm Shane Brighton and I'm Senior Lecturer in International Relations at the University of Sussex. So on your profile online, Shane, it says your area of research is contemporary defence, which I find an interesting phrase, security and foreign policy, and then the political sociology of security, strategy and armed conflict. Yeah. So <laughs> does privacy have a place in, in what you're talking about? I certainly think it does. I mean, it, I think that part of the nature of society and part of the nature of governance is that it always produces uneven effects of advantage and disadvantage. I mean, again, one can talk about a kind of formal and juridical requirement that, that the state, at least, will not enter the private realm of individuals without very good reason. Um, and the problem there is that when those within the state feel that they need to do that, it's generally done in secrecy. So there are questions of public trust about whether the institutions that invade our privacy are fit for purpose. And, of course, we've had revelations that uh, from Snowden that, that have told us a great deal about the extent to which this is being done and allowed people far greater knowledge of what it is that's done in the name of the state in support of securing citizens than we have had before. So it's a very interesting time to be asking those questions. Details have emerged of how MI5 has been collecting the records of all domestic phone calls in Britain for the past 10 years. The revelation came as the government set out its plans for new surveillance laws. The government's publishing plans for new surveillance laws. The Investigatory Powers Bill is expected to require internet companies to store details of people's online activity for a year. Universal meanings of freedom are clearly difficult to define. Yet the recognition that freedom is compromised by a lack of privacy has historically been worn as a badge of superiority 
by Western Europe and American politics. Before 1989, the difference between East and West Berlin was understood to be the stark opposites of democracy and dictatorship. But the truth is, whether your government is democratic or otherwise, those with the power to detain, judge and punish you, as well as the power to grant you the redress of your own defence, are ultimately the same authorities that determine what should be done with your personal information, your privacy and arguably your freedom. Because of this potentially dangerous misuse of power, privacy in many countries has been enshrined as an objective cultural value, as well as a legal human right. In 2013, former CIA employee Edward Snowden revealed that the United States Security Agency, or NSA, were involved in numerous covert surveillance programs with the cooperation of telecommunication companies and European governments. It is difficult to describe this revelation in any other way than a government that had been caught secretly and illegally spying on their own people. Hello there, I have an appointment with Silky Carlo. Uh, yeah, My name's Will Hood. I had the opportunity to talk to the civil rights group Liberty about the legal and moral relationship between privacy and democracy. Germany and the UK are both held to account by the European Court of Human Rights that was drafted in the aftermath of World War II. I met up with technology and surveillance policy officer Silky Carlo to discuss how the Snowden revelations had directly affected us in the UK. No matter what the advance of technology, there, there could never be a justified reason for having information on every member of the population, and there can never be a way for that to make people safer. I think the main effect of the Snowden revelations was to force the agency's powers into the light um, and to force them to be more transparent as to which pieces of legislation were being used. And of course, ultimately now, within Britain uh, in 2016, the Investigatory Powers Bill is a direct consequence of the Snowden revelations because it has forced powers that we didn't know, parliamentarians didn't know, and even the scrutiny committees didn't know that the intelligence agencies and the police had. Mm. So trying to make their actions legal posthumously. That's exactly what this piece of legislation attempts to do. It takes the wide variety of overwhelming powers that they have and tries to legislate for them now, years after they've been revealed by Edward Snowden. Technology has made it theoretically possible for surveillance to take place on a scale unimaginable by previous generations. The US, as well as many countries in Europe, are struggling to reconcile this technological potential with the recognition of privacy as a human right. Liberty's present director and human rights lawyer, Shami Chakrabarti, has written, rules in the form of human rights and rule of law prevent majority rule descending into that of mob and today's democracy from becoming tomorrow's dictatorship. In Britain, the controversial Investigatory Powers Bill has been proposed, a watered-down version of an earlier piece of legislation known as the Snoopers Charter. This bill gives the UK government significantly greater legal access to our digital behaviours.
the powers that are in the investigatory powers bill really do threaten our security and certainly our freedom. There are an unprecedented amount of bulk powers or, more frankly, mass surveillance powers in the bill that would allow for bulk interception of communications, so that's content of emails, phone calls, bulk communications data, the where, when, what of your communications, logs of your emails, browsing history, telephone calls, and also bulk hacking, so that agencies can now hack and own our devices and therefore all the information within them. Um, and also new powers to collect bulk personal data sets. And this is basically big data mining. So the agencies are taking up any data sets they can get their hands on. We know that in those data sets there is information relating to um, race and ethnicity, medical conditions, political opinions, sexual orientation, deeply private information on millions of innocent people. Wow, that is terrifying. It is terrifying. We're quite often presented with this idea that there's always got to be a balance struck between uh, security and liberty or security and privacy. It's seductive because it draws on deep concepts within the way in which we do politics and society, particularly in the West, where we have a contract with our government. So the government provides us with security. uh, We provide a certain amount of loyalty. And in that, we get as much liberty as we can. The problem with that is that every time you have, for example, a terrorist attack, there's a presumption that somehow this has come out of the fact that we're too free. So firstly, it's problematic because it assumes that if you have a successful act of terror or you have a successful uh, attack by an enemy in the context of war, that freedom is the the cause for that. And we have to reduce freedom in, in order to achieve more security in future. The other problem with it is it assumes that we all will give up freedom. We all will succumb to increased surveillance because we all will benefit. Whereas in truth, what we're usually talking about is some minority being surveilled more or losing freedom or being more subject to investigation without charge, etc. So the effect of this bargain of, of saying we'll give up something in order to have more security often hits very specific groups of people. And that can be the case in a context like East Germany during the Cold War, where it will be groups of dissidents or groups of people that were critical of the regime whose experience of that bargain was very, very different from elites within the party who weren't necessarily subject to additional controls over their freedom. And the same happens now where you have what um, some social theorists of of security refer to as suspect communities, parts of Northern Irish community or uh, Irish communities in the UK being subject to additional surveillance additional levels of suspicion, other kinds of judicial and legal processes than other people. And we have something quite similar now with with Muslim communities in the UK as well. So the thing is that we tend to talk about these things in terms of generality, this relationship between security and liberty, but the effects very often are highly particular. It generally produces these very uneven results. With uh, which person? Uh, how your name? Uh, I'm speaking. My name is Zoe. Zoe. Yeah. Zoe. The voice you can hear is episode producer Zoe Seal, visiting the home of Herbert, Martin's yeah. grandfather. 
Martin's grandmother is also present, serving everyone tea. And also you have Martin, his wife and young child. A family gathering that spans a full four generations. In the name of privacy, Martin has asked for his surname not to appear in this episode. And although this was not a request of his grandfather, in accordance with Martin's wishes, the family name shall be kept anonymous. Zoe has asked Herbert to explain his story to us and for Martin to translate. Perhaps as a habit formed during his many years working as an interrogator for the Ministry of State Security, Herbert has decided it is necessary that he too records the interview for his own records. Also, ich bin Jahrgang 1938. So, born in 1938. In today, it's Poland. That's right. And they had to move from that area after the war. Obviously, arrived in grammar school one year later than everybody else. Meine Pflichten gegenüber dem Staat erfüllen wollte, damit ich anschließend studieren kann. Ich wollte Ingenieur werden. So, in order to become an engineer, which would require studies, he thought um, it would be best to serve in the army for two years to fulfill his duties to the state, which obviously made it a little easier to acquire a place in the university. Well, a couple of weeks after he left army, and he received a letter with an invitation from the police. Wem ich diese Einladung zu verdanken habe. He's got no idea who he should be thanking for that kind of invitation. But they just got to him. Usually someone points you out and uh, forwards your details, but he, did, he did, has no idea who did that. He was pre presented to some kind of a committee. Um, they obviously liked what they saw as well. And 1st of January 1958, yeah. Um, he was an uh, employee of the Ministry for State Security of the GDR. Is there a, a, a word or a single title that would describe the profession that he had? I'm not quite sure if interrogator does it justice, because that was not everything he was doing. He was getting all the information from the um, operative people, uh, whether it was from postal information from tap wires from people following other people um, and of course breaking into their uh, flats sure that that was being done um, as well as it is being done today if necessary but only if the judge said yes okay I see the point it is important to Martin that the acts of surveillance undertaken by his grandfather were supported by the authority of a judge and as he quite rightly points out, for most people listening, this will be the same legal construct that would determine the invasion of your privacy by the state. However, what does it mean when the surveillance of someone's private life has become possible without any consideration or referral to a legal or moral authority? I sat next to someone at a dinner party who said with pride how he was interviewing two candidates for a job, one who was a young 
woman who had was uh, really really excited and really good for the job and had loads of creative ideas. The other was an older woman who had uh, seemed a bit kind of you know run of the mill whatever. And he said, I went on Facebook to check them out and I gave the job to the older woman because the younger woman had said, I've just met the love of my life, so I know she's going to leave and get pregnant quite soon. <laughs> and I was sitting there looking at him, thinking, you're saying this as if as if you're proud of your behaviour, as if that's okay. Um, for him, it was a pragmatic decision. For me, it was a complete abuse. Uh, but that is, of course, the danger of shared information. My name is Tom Ormerod. I'm a professor of psychology and head of the School of Psychology at the University of Sussex. It's interesting that for someone that spends so much time in, in surveillance that you recognise that this person used surveillance, which was perfectly legal and, and perfectly socially normalised, um, yet... Morally, you feel that person should have felt slightly ashamed of that. Somehow that was underhand. Yes, morally, I think it was a, 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 an abhorrent thing to do. Um, and maybe part of the process of learning to understand the surveillance that happens through social media is learning how to set people's moral compass to say what is an appropriate way of using someone else's data, even if they're letting you have it. What is an appropriate type of judgment to make from it? And I don't think we do much of that. If it's out there, you can do what you like with it. Privacy and, and surveillance, its relationship with technology. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. But any kind of electronic communication, maybe WhatsApp, Facebook, telephone communication, SMS, to collect every scrap of data you are giving away. I'm not quite sure if people noticed, and because this is a funny thing our government tends to do, they create a hysteria, and when they we are on the peak of the hysteria, they are slipping through little laws. Yeah, this is even worse. In the UK, the sense that important laws are being passed without adequate scrutiny is very much the concern of those that believe in privacy as both a human right and an important tenant of democracy. Silky Carlo again. I had a meeting at the Home Office last week and I must say I'm not overly optimistic as to the chances for significant improvement of the Investigatory Powers Bill. This legislation is being absolutely fast-tracked through Parliament and with so much else going on, with elections and, of course, the EU referendum, we can't expect that such an important piece of legislation that relates to fundamental freedoms, rights, civil liberties and our security is going to have the scrutiny that it really deserves. One of the real-life scenarios where such legal powers of surveillance in the name of security will affect us all is at our national borders. Like the Berlin Wall, the idea that the greatest threat of terror is from those outside. It is at our airports that the physical threat of those with something to hide is most acutely felt by our intelligence agencies. Tom Omerod advises with governments on effective surveillance techniques in the context of airport security. So recent applied research focuses on developing effective methods for evaluating human behavior during security screening processes. Um, are you able to explain to me what that involves? What is that? Sure. Um, there's uh, been a lot of uh, work done to develop 
security screening procedures after events like September the 11th, uh, trying to stop bad people, inverted commas, getting on planes and doing bad things. And these have been informed by um, previous incidents and by assumptions made by security personnel that have never been put to empirical test. And these are assumptions about human behavior and the relationship between uh, the behavioral signs that people give off and their intent. Now, as a psychologist, everything I know about the psychology of detecting deception suggests that there are no suspicious signs that are reliable indicators of deception. Much of the work that I've done over the last 10 years or so has been developing effective ways of having conversations with people such that uh, if you are a legitimate passenger, then you are able to engage in a normal, friendly, informal conversation. And if you are travelling with malintent, um, you won't have signs in your behaviour that just reveal themselves. But if you have a, an interview procedure that's effective, during the interview, you will feel challenged. And that at that point, your behaviour will change. So one of the things, the mantras of my own work is there are no behaviours that reveal deception except change in behaviour. The only constant is change. He was given uh, a task of an investigation, accused what a German woman of doing espionage, like travelling back and forth between East and West Berlin, meeting people. I was quite certain that the woman does not did not reveal everything she knew. So he, he, he had the woman um, brought in for an interrogation and he explained to her that it was his task to talk about the stuff that she did not reveal yet. So the woman burst out crying and was sobbing like they're gonna, they're gonna kill me, gonna beat me to death and beside herself and well, he told her, no, 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 nobody will harm you, nothing will happen to you. Just start talking first and so figure it out. Im Ergebnis hat sie mir noch drei Spione genannt, die auch wie sie für die Amerikaner in Westberlin gearbeitet haben. In the process, she informed him about three more spies that they were not aware of yet. He has uh, written everything down, took a statement. Well, that uh, protocol settled his fate now. Yeah, right. Um, people got wind of him being very new to the station and already settled his first case, so people started uh, just knocking the door just to get a glimpse of him. So I guess my definition of privacy is very much defined under uh, the ethical constructs under which I do my research. So I guess it means being able to choose with whom you share information and how much and being able to recover that information when you choose to. Part of the, the job of someone who violates someone's privacy is to ensure that it is temporary, it's transient, and that the passenger or whoever it is who's had their privacy temporarily interrupted goes away knowing that it's restored. And one of the problems, of course, with the surveillance culture where you're recording information passively for later use is that people's privacy is violated and not restored. I, I was just thinking whilst you were saying that I should uh, disclose the real-life scenario that's part of this documentary because I think it will be relevant. Is that 
began to worry me during my conversation with Tom that perhaps he wasn't fully aware that Herbert's story as an interrogator for the Stasi was part of the documentary he was taking part in. His response to being reminded of this was, I'm sure, not too dissimilar to many of you listening. What if Herbert was lying? And what if he was actually complicit in acts of torture? To which I have no single response other than to say that this is not what his grandson Martin believes. Yet perhaps more importantly, Tom, Herbert and Martin all agree that torture is surely an ineffective way to gather intelligence. This does not excuse any act of physical brutality. However, the line between an interrogation and an interview, and to what extent an interrogation can be considered abusive, is largely unclear. But his line is that the officers of the Stasi, on the whole, behaved with complete integrity and they towed the party line. Um, but one of his main points is that torture, um, and which is obviously what the Stasi are so well known for, was not part of what he used. What he did was talk to people. And he found that that was the way to get information and that he was very effective at doing that. Well, if that was true then he would be correct. It's um, All the research indication seems to suggest that conversational, um, empathic communication is far better for getting information out of people than um, aggressive, uh, interrogative methods, particularly methods involving torture. Um, unfortunately, the claims made by proponents of Guantanamo and such places are untestable. I mean, so if you talk to a security service person, they will tell you Guantanamo um, and others, Abu Ghraib and such places, were very important in preventing terrorist uh, activities. That claim is untestable, uh, unfortunately, partly because full information will never be revealed, but also because they didn't test what would happen if you did something else. So the claims that he's making, uh, if if they are true, then a conversational method would be best. It doesn't actually accord with my understanding of the Stasi. And if he acted in that way, many members of the Stasi, I suspect, did not. When man ihn foltert, oder wenn man mit ihm menschlich umgeht. So what is the most efficient way to learn the truth from a person when you torture them physically or psychological or if you treat them like a human being just talk to them in a certain way though um, yeah because evidently when you go and torture the people you will end up having them tell you what you want to hear like there was only so much uh, the evidence in a certain case gave away like if you wanted to have more background information about the um, who gave orders and stuff like that these informations could be only given away by the agent you captured himself because if you try to get this kind of information by actual investigative work would take you much more assets and time and still you probably would never come up with something like that so if you gain their trust, you get much more out of it than if you beat them with a stick or whatever they supposedly did. As a psychologist, would you expect interviewers or indeed interrogators to be better at deception? No, there's no evidence for that, certainly. And 
um, interviewers in the, in, in the criminal justice system are typically just police officers, just human beings. Um, in fact, all the evidence suggests that people who are, inverted commas, professional lie detectors, such as um, police interviewers, judges, etc., typically do slightly worse in tests of deception detection than members of the, the general public. Actually, in certain contexts, people are very good lie detectors. So I don't know if you have a partner or children, but if you did, um, you would probably be able to tell when they're lying very easily. I certainly can tell when my children are lying, and they can unfortunately tell when I am too. Um, and it's because, A, you've known me a long time, or they've known me a long time, so they know a whole range of my behaviours, and B, they know what I'm like when I'm telling the truth, so they can see the difference. And when did you decide that you wanted to write books about your story? Wie bist du drauf gekommen, dann Bücher zu schreiben? Wann war das? So the actual idea came from this Austrian guy who was captured um, because of the investigations of uh, Herbert. Um, they stayed in contact, and I think that that illustrates it a lot how the interrogators treated the prisoners. Martin told me also how he would be interested to translate your books into English. Mm -hmm. um, so could you tell me how that came about? How Obviously, I'm, since I'm his grandchild, I'm part of his family and it is very important to him to explain himself to his children and grandchildren that they know and understand what he was doing, why he was doing it and giving us all the information we need to look uh, at the world in a right perspective. Any claim on the right perspective will in reality always be relative to the facts available. And this is what gives information its power as well as surveillance and secrecy its political imperative. Martin's grandfather is a controversial figure who has published a number of books insisting that his experience of post-war Germany is not the same as the history his grandson was taught at school. Herbert has also embraced newer technologies in explaining himself to the world and has a YouTube channel which has attracted viewers from over 70 different countries. The idea that we inherit the truth and secrets of our parents and grandparents greatly affects the way history is taught and understood. It also suggests that surveillance has a relationship with education that is challenging to concepts of both freedom and democracy. Shane Brighton again. So I have to begin every year a course uh, where I teach about the politics of terror, effectively with a, a briefing about the legal dangers of doing the research that I want my students to do. Right? So there are things that they can download out there on the internet. There are sources they can consult. There are forms of information that they can get access through that might lead to their being investigated under counterterrorism legislation or might lead were they their hard drive of a laptop, for example, being scanned when they were going through an airport in the US or whatever, to their being detained, right? So I have to come up with the solution. How do I advise students? What do I do, given that I want them to investigate the phenomenon of political violence, of terrorism, as widely and as imaginatively and as rigorously as they possibly can? What do I tell them to do? Well, what I do is I tell them about the history of convictions, that have occurred under this legislation. I recite and recount conversations I've had with people that have been arrested under that legislation. I also tell them about 
people that I the contacts I have within police and within uh, the legal profession who have dealt with that um, uh, legislation. And I try to give them the best advice and as much knowledge as possible. What I don't do is tell them not to download stuff or not to look at stuff. What I do want them to do is to be aware of the risks that they run if they're going to do it and make serious decisions where if they're looking at maybe downloading a document that might put them on a list or might invite surveillance, that they ask themselves questions about whether it's actually seriously worth them doing it or it's one of those kind of web browsing curiosities. You know, that's one way in which I've had to think through, uh, however imperfectly, this relationship between knowledge, politics and technology. It is obviously whether or not I do believe in what my grandfather has to say. Well, not only him, because you wouldn't imagine how many prison inmates voice their opinion as well. And you won't find their books if they're not consistent with their curriculum in these bookstores. And... As I told you, I was planning on some time um, translating my the books of my grandfather into English. I just realized how necessary this is. What What is surveillance? What does it mean to you? Is it so simple as to give it a moral, it's good or it's bad? These kinds of powers, like surveilling everyone at any time, who has the power to do this? Well, governments. And who are governments today mainly connected to? Who do they listen to? To scientists? As you very well know, um, unfortunately not, that as often as they should. But um, it's about making my own country a good marketplace. So then why this obsession that we have with filming every moment of every day and recording everybody's actions and behaviors? Well, for the sole purpose of gaining money. And the reason why they are still trying to make people see how bad the GDR at all was, it is not about the GDR. It's about the uh, the economic model it was standing for, yeah? about the communism. I'm not saying the communism was exercised very well, And I am not saying the um, GDR was a perfect place to be in. Uh, people made mistakes, of course. And why they are trying to make you see how bad the GDR slash communism is, is they will would never make a single dime with communism because communism is not about money. Communism is about people. And this is what our society today is lacking to a disgusting degree. Who would you want your son to think your grandfather, his great-grandfather, is or was? Nothing less than I have described him. Yeah. He should make his own opinion, of course. Writing in 1945, At the end of the Second World War, Karl Popper, in his text The Open Society and Its Enemies, suggests that instead of the greatest happiness for the greatest number, one should instead demand more modestly the least amount of suffering for all. And with this in mind, the ethics of mass state surveillance, as well as the legal respect of privacy as a human right, 
is as relevant to Europe today as it has been at any other point in its shared history. The belief that surveillance, torture and the persecution of citizens by the state are exclusively the preserve of communist and not capitalist governments is a dangerously reductive way to understand history. The undermining of privacy in the name of greater security is not a fanatical relic of the past. And in an age of technological passivity, it is possibly the greatest challenge facing democracy as a meaningful model of global citizenship. Further information about all who featured in this episode can be found as ever at www.theglassbeegame.co.uk and whilst you're there, why not subscribe for free at the top of the website to ensure that you get next month's episode which shall be an attempt to better understand the present European refugee crisis. Your presenter for this episode has been Will Hood the episode producer Zoe Seal, and the series producer is Rob Alexander. The Glass Bead Game has been brought to you by the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex and is an Animal Monday production.